we doing today? Good. Did it throw you off when the kids left after the first song? Or No? You all knew? Good. Um, so next week, we haven't talked about this a lot, but uh, we have our Men's Rooted Conference on Saturday. Shane Black from Life Action Ministries. How many of you remember Shane Black from last year, the summit that we had? Uh, we love Shane. He was excellent, and so we, we brought him back for our Rooted Conference. Guys, this is your last chance to sign up. Um, we'd love to have you come and join us for that day. Um, he's he's going to bring a great message, a couple of great messages, and then we have a couple other guys that are going to share some testimonies, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but then what we haven't really talked about is that Shane is going to stay, and he's going to preach next Sunday. Uh, and so we're excited to invite Shane to come back and, and preach. It'll be like a little mini revival next Sunday morning. Um, so I won't be overly offended if the church is just packed out with people in expectation of Shane Black. Um, I'll just be a little offended. But no, I, I, uh, I'm looking forward to that. He's, he's wonderful. And we wanted you to know in case this is a time when you want to invite some friends, family, or anyone else to come and join you for church. Uh, we're just going to have a great time of worship. Um, but for today, um, what we're going to do, we're going to do something a little bit different than how we normally do it. Usually we have a passage, we'll stand and read it. Um, but what we're going to do, we're going to walk through two chapters in Acts. So I'm going to ask that you get a pew Bible, that you get your Bible out, you get your phone Bible out, whatever Bible you have access to. We're going to walk through these passages together, um, and we're going to stop, and we're going to talk about, you know, explain and, and uh, ap apply things, you know, as we come across them. But um, let me just say one quick thing. Um, one is that we don't uh, oftentimes really encourage you to bring your Bible to church. We, we want you to. Obviously, we'd love for you to bring your Bible to church, um, we always want to make sure that we have Bibles available. We're going to put it on the screen. We've got them in every seat and, and all that. But to, when you have your Bible in front of you, I think that's really helpful. Um, the other thing, though, is that sometimes um, people will say, and I've heard this before, and I don't know if you've heard this, like a phone Bible is not a real Bible. Have you ever heard that? Listen, um, it is the Word of God. Whatever format that you can access the Word of God. Just make sure you're getting the Word of God. Amen? I mean, don't let anybody look down on you because you have your phone and the Bible's on your phone. Uh, that's God's Word. It doesn't matter if it's printed out on paper or on a phone or on stone tablets or whatever else we're using. I mean, come on. It's the Word of God. That's the point. So we're going to walk through this together. Um, and I have to say this really quickly. Um, I'm, I'm not skipping. Last week at 8 o'clock service, I preached a, a sermon on the in-between years of Paul's life. So what we've done is we've, we've focused heavily on um, his life prior to Christ, um, his persecution of the church. We've focused on his conversion, that uh, God got a hold of him in a significant way, changed him, and uh, uh, made him part of his mission to plant the church all over the world. There was uh, a period of time that the Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail about. It doesn't talk about it in the book of Acts at all. 
um, because the book of Acts is not a biography of Paul's life. Okay, the book of Acts is an account of the spread of the church. Okay, and how Paul fits into that is significant, but it's not a, a biography of Paul's life. So there are things of Paul's life that it doesn't bring out because it's not important in terms of what it means to the, the work of the Holy Spirit to plant the church and to get the movement of the church all over the world. Um, but in Paul's letters, he does give us some indication, understanding of some things that were happening in his life, places that he went, time periods that he had that are um, apart from what we see in the book of Acts. Last week, if you're interested in that, uh, I preached on that at the 8 o'clock service. You can go online. It, it should be archived there. You can, you can listen to that, watch it, whatever you like to do. Um, but it'll catch you up a little bit on those in-between years. Because where we're going to pick it up is uh, Paul's ministry of missions. And then he goes on three significant um, missions. Okay, Three times he goes on these mission trips that are worldwide that take long time. And so the first one, it's Acts chapters 13 and 14. And that covers about a year of his life. And then we're going to see his second missionary journey takes about three years. His third missionary journey takes about four years. And then he's going to travel back to Jerusalem where he's going to be arrested. And he's going to go and spend a couple years in Caesarea in jail. And then he's going to travel to Rome where he's going to be in jail for a while longer. Okay, so we'll cover those things in the next few weeks. But today what we're going to do is we're going to focus in on this. What we really know and understand and love about Paul is his, his mission work. How he was so significant in planting the church all over the world in a time when it wasn't happening, okay, in a time when the church was just starting, okay? So uh, we're going to start here with Acts chapter 13, so open that in your Bibles, on your phones, wherever you have it. Let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you uh, for this day again. To worship, to honor, to glorify you, Lord, is, is our job. It's our joy, and uh, we're so thankful that we can be led in that in such a a wonderful way, Lord, by our praise team. Thank you for uh, just their heart to lead us into your presence. Uh, Lord, we do feel like we really have been ushered into your throne room this morning. Uh, we glorify you. We thank you for that. We thank you that uh, right now, I, I believe, I hope, and I pray that our hearts are ready for uh, the next moment of worship, which is uh, to open your word, to hear your truth, uh, to let it do its work um, in changing our lives. And that's our prayer, that your word would change our lives. Um, everything else, Lord, that, that we're after um, really comes down to that, that your word would do its work through the power of your Holy Spirit, by faith in Christ, by the, the redeeming work of our Savior in our lives, um, that something would be planted in our hearts so deep it would bear fruit for the rest of our lives. We can't do that, Lord. You can. And, and you said that you, you would, that your word would go out, produce its fruit, and do its work. And I'm praying, Lord, that our hearts are ready for that, that we would just receive what you have to give and, uh, and be ready and sensitive to the movement of your Holy Spirit as you take your word and change our lives with it. We thank you that we can do that. We thank you that we have the opportunity to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Acts chapter 13, we're going to start off verse 1. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. That's an important word there, prophets. Okay, we, we consider Paul an apostle, and, and he is an apostle. That was his office. That was his designation and his power. But he was a prophet under the same understanding of the Old Testament prophets. And that will be important later. Prophets and teachers, Barnabas, uh, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menane, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch is the king, uh, the ruler, who beheaded John the Baptist. So somebody who was a very close friend of his, lifelong close friend of his, was converted to Christianity, became a believer, and was significant in the, the, the life of the church. That's interesting. And also Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And the issue here is that there doesn't sound like that's a hugely important thing, but there's a, a principle going on in that passage that we need to understand about Paul specifically, which is when we look at Paul, we say, man, he was a, a guy who's passionate about preaching the gospel. He was so effective in planting churches. He was so zealous for the Lord. He had all these wonderful gifts and, and wonderful uh, effective ministries that were so successful that he's really single-handedly almost given credit for the spread of the church in the first century. Would you agree? That's, that's something that we look at Paul, we say, man, this is a guy who is so good at what he did and so blessed in that. And, and here's the deal. Paul did not do that because he wanted to. Okay, now, did he want to? Maybe he did. But that wasn't the reason why he was so effective. It wasn't the reason why he went. It was because he was called by God to do it. And so this is the heart. This is not just the heart of Paul and his ministry and the effectiveness of planting the church all over the world in the first century. It is the heart of Christianity in, in the sense of what it really is and what it means. Discerning God's will and then doing God's will. That's it. If we could summarize what the, the heart of Christianity is, what it means to be a Christian, and, and everything that flows out of being a Christian, it's that sentiment. Discerning God's will and obeying God's will. When you get that, then things become a lot less complicated. Would you agree? This is what they do. God says, send Paul. They say, okay, what else would we do? other than just say okay to God. And then when you get this working in your life, then it brings you to the point of, of salvation because what you understand is God's will initially is that lost people who, who are far from God would accept Jesus, who is the Savior, who is the only Savior, the only sacrifice, and the only person, the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved, that lost people would understand God's will first and foremost is to receive Jesus. When we get that, we say, okay, um, I'm a sinner separated from God. I'm going to receive Jesus. I'm going to accept what he did and who he is. It's not just what he did 2,000 years ago, but the fact that he is alive and he wants a permanent, constant, consistent, daily relationship with you, with me. I say yes to Jesus. Then I step into what it means to be a Christian. And now... Everything else is, okay, God, who are you? What does your word say? What do you want? What's your will for me? And I'm just trying to get my mind 
just like what Seth was talking about, his thoughts towards us, well, his thoughts about everything. I'm trying to learn those things, understand those things. And as I do, I put my will aside and say, okay, God, your will be done. And then things become a lot more simple. Not easy. Can you testify to that? Not easy, but simple. And so here's how it's not easy, because what we're going to see in this pattern of mission work is that there are a few things that are going to happen. Uh, but let's just step into it here in uh, the following passage, verse 4. It says, So being sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Cyprus is a, a fairly large island off the coast of Israel, uh, out in the Mediterranean Sea. They go to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salome, uh, they proclaimed the word of God to the in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Uh, so here's what happens. They go to Cyprus. They begin to preach the word, and things are going great. They're proclaiming Jesus, that he's the Savior, and they go through the entire island of Cyprus. They go from east to west, and they basically are proclaiming everywhere, and, and its uh, ministry just seems really to be going well, which ministry a lot of times at first seems to, to do that. And uh, God encourages you at first so that he's preparing you for what's coming. Um, kind of a joke, but not really. Here's, here's another principle that you have to learn as a Christian, is that God will generally, usually confirm your faith in some significant way as you begin to step into a relationship with him. He, he confirms that. He, he affirms it in your heart. There's some confidence in you. There's some, sometimes it's a miracle that happens in your life. Sometimes it's a sin that he removes. Sometimes it's a relationship that he repairs or just something that a light bulb goes off. Sometimes there's this confirmation that, okay, yes, this is right. And why that confirmation is so important is because trouble is coming. Proclamation of the gospel, belief, then the next thing is opposition. And this is almost so consistent throughout the history or the story of Paul and all of his mission work that it becomes like a principle that, that we could just follow in our own lives. I'm going to have these experiences. When I hear the gospel or when the gospel makes a difference in my life and I accept it by faith, I, I know that there's a good thing in this, but there's also some tribulation that's going to come along at some point. Opposition. Our enemy is not happy with us switching teams. You were on Satan's team before you became a Christian. You switched teams to God's team, and your enemy is looking to disturb you on that, okay? So here's what happens. Verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, Bar-Jesus basically means son of Joshua, okay? Um, his name was Bar-Jesus. He was uh, the proconsul uh, with the proconsul, which is the highest ruling Roman official on the island. Uh, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So the, their fame kind of precedes them. They're doing some good work in ministry. The gospel's being spread. The highest ruling of Roman official on the island says, I want to hear what you have to say. So there's a desire to respond that he doesn't know what to respond to yet. Here's what else is, is happening, though. But Elimus, the magician, that's what his name means. It means magi, which is like the, the three wise men that visited Jesus when he was born. Okay, gave the gifts. It's the same sense. It's just somebody who's a wise person who has access to certain 
magical qualities, so to speak. Um, there's a reason for that. But opposed, he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Here is what's going on. Elimus, or Bar-Jesus, is posing as a Jewish prophet. Okay, From Scripture, we know that he's a false prophet, that he's actually a magician, a, a charlatan. He's somebody who is using illusion in order to convince people that he's authentic. He's not authentic. But this would happen all the time, that people would profess or proclaim to be prophets. They would tell people what they want to hear. They would use some kind of trickery to get you to convinced that they're accurate or true. The Old Testament prophet says that if you are a false prophet, the way to test them is to ask them to do a miracle if they cannot produce a miracle. If something they say does not come true almost immediately, then you know that they're a false prophet. You don't have to listen to anything else that they say. Why is that important? Is because Paul, as we said earlier, is an authentic, true prophet. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to prove and validate and confirm that his message is true by performing an authentic miracle immediately. Saul, verse 9, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now... Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind, unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So Paul authenticates and validates his message, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, by performing this miracle and proving also in that moment that this person is a false prophet and that nothing he has said is true. But that opposition was there. Paul, as a prophet, as uh, an apostle, had the power and the authority to do that. But he needed the power and the authority to do that because the message was so new. It was so unique in the sense that we haven't heard this before. How do we know what you're saying is true? He had to validate that. And so what happens in verse 12, the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I don't know if you find that kind of weird. Because you would think that the miracle of, of saying immediately somebody is blind and then they, they go blind would be astonishing. But that wasn't the astonishing thing. It was that this was validating something that is eternally and permanently and powerfully true, which is that there is a Savior and that Savior has died for me and that I can know Him and have eternal life. That... I don't have to wander through the world like Elimus is groping for somebody to lead me because I have the Savior in my life and I have hope of eternal life. That was, that was so new and astonishing that it was a revelation. Okay? And Paul shows that this, this truth, this uh, gospel is real, it's valid, it's confirmed, and you can trust it. So... Verse 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga uh, in Pamphylia. So here's, it's an interesting thing because you have this significant moment of a leading ruler on this island who has come to faith, but you don't stick around to just 
stay in that ministry and produce, you know, all the disciples. And, and here's the reason is because as a called apostle, um, they were not going to become pastors. They were called to go from place to place to place to plant the gospel, to build churches, and then to move on to the next place. And so this is what he does. They, they move on. They go back to the mainland, okay, and they go to Turkey. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That, that becomes important a little bit later, but uh, at this point, we're not going to get into it. But they went on from Perga, came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, we just said Paul started from Antioch. Do you remember that? That's where their home base is, Antioch in Syria. This is another Antioch in Turkey, and so there are a lot of Antiochs, okay? Let's just say, just like there are a lot of places in the United States uh, named Springfield, right? There are a lot of places in the world called Antioch at this time. It's an important name for city. So they go to another Antioch, a different Antioch, um, and here's what they did. It, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue, sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, and he's going to preach a message. Now, I got to explain a little bit about synagogues and why this is such an important moment. Uh, we all understand the local church. There are many church, local churches in many communities. Most communities have at least one. Uh, but usually what happens is that you have uh, a church of people, and this is people who gather together to read God's word, worship God, learn together, have fellowship, have community. That model, okay, is based on the synagogue of the first century. Okay, between the exile of Babylon and then the time of Jesus, something developed which was that people were, Jewish people were all over the world now trying to figure out how to worship, how to actually connect with God, how to learn together because now we don't have a centralized country. Now we're all over the place. So what they created was a synagogue system. It's very much like the local church. We gather together, we worship, we read God's word, we study, we have fellowship. It's kind of a community center. There are a couple of small differences, maybe big differences. One is that because it is Jewish in nature, they follow the law. And the law says that you cannot walk travel a certain distance on the Sabbath, okay? The Sabbath rules are still in place for them. So that means that in order to have this community center, it has to be in close proximity to people who can get there without breaking the law. Does that make sense? So the rule that they developed was as long as there are at least 10 Jewish men who live within a Sabbath day's walk, of this central location, you can have a, you can have a synagogue there, a, lo a little local church there. So these synagogues were popping up all over the place. Wherever the Jewish people were dispersed, they would have these synagogues, and they would, might have multiple synagogues in any given large city because you're not going to break the Sabbath in order to worship on the Sabbath. So why that's important is because with the development of all these local synagogues, they don't have enough trained professional rabbis. Have you heard me talk about this already? Some of you are like, yeah. Some of you are like, I, have, I don't know what you're talking about now. Um, so here's what's happening. They don't have enough trained professional rabbis for all these synagogues. They have a layperson. 
they say, ruling them, or somebody who's kind of the president of the synagogue. And they kind of orchestrate and organize the worship for the day and all that stuff. And maybe they're fairly well educated, but they don't have the credentials of having gone to you know, school and they have a bachelor's degree and they have all the, the references. Paul would walk in to any synagogue in the world with impeccable credentials as a professional rabbi that he could lay out his, his resume and say, look at all the education I have. I have all these people. I was trained under Gamaliel, who was the foremost educator of his day. Okay? He had all these credentials. So when he walked into a synagogue, they immediately, almost anywhere, they would say, the pulpit is yours. The, the teaching time is yours. You want to teach? We welcome that because we don't have trained professional rabbis in all these places. This is why this is important because wherever Paul would go, he would have an opportunity to take the mic. Can you imagine you, if you were so f- famous, I mean, your reputation preceded you everywhere that you went, that any time that you wanted to step into any venue that they would say, please, by all means, would you tell us something? Anybody have that kind of clout? I mean, that, this is what Paul had. Anywhere that he went, he could walk in and say, I'd like to take the pulpit for the morning. And they would let him do it. As a preacher of the gospel, that's a pretty powerful thing. So he walks in. Now he's going to share the message of the gospel. Now for him, uh, for them, it was like um, people like more or less like our church. You're biblically knowledgeable. You, you kind of know what the Bible says about a lot of things. So we're not starting from scratch with most people. There, there may be, you know, the person that comes in once in a while who has never heard any of this before, and you're trying to figure out, like, what all this, this is about. Um, but in the case of the synagogue, you're dealing with people who know the Bible, they know the Old Testament, they know their history, they know, they know who God is, they know the prophecies about the Messiah. They understand that the whole history of the Jewish people, all the law all the prophets, all the history, everything has been leading up to um, the fact that they need and they're looking forward to a Messiah. They know that. So Paul, in like four sentences, if you read through the message, um, in four sentences, let's just read a little bit of it. It says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. In one sentence, he just clarified or, or reduced Abraham to the Exodus. He, in one sentence. And then, verse 18, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the desert or in the wilderness. Uh, after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their lands as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. So in just a few sentences, he's taken them from Abraham all the way to Samuel, who is going to anoint Saul king, and he talks about Saul in about a sentence, and then he, but his point is he wants to get to David. He's going to rush through all these things really quickly. They already know these things. He doesn't have to elaborate on them. He doesn't have to explain them. He just says, here's our history four sentences. We want to get to David because all the promises of the Messiah were found in and given to David. And then he's going to explain from David to Jesus. 
Then he goes, he's going to take a step back and he's going to talk about John the Baptist. John the Baptist confirmed that he was not the Messiah himself, but that he was preceding the Messiah and that one was coming after him. Now, this is interesting. This is like 20 years after John the Baptist died, but John the Baptist is still so famous and well-known that when he brings up John the Baptist's name, they all know who he's talking about, what his ministry is about, what he proclaimed. And he, he still has, after 20 years of being dead, a, a substance and a reputation that people respect. John the Baptist said, somebody's coming after me. It was Jesus. And now he's going to talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and this is important because what he's going to say is, if they know about John the Baptist, I'm going to assume, wouldn't you assume this? If they know about John the Baptist, they also know about Jesus. How do you know about John the Baptist and not about Jesus, whose ministry was far greater, who did far more, and the church is spreading around the world and the gospel's being proclaimed? How do they not know who? designed for their flesh to rot and liquefy fairly rapidly. After one year, they go back into that tomb. They take the bones that are just bones now, and they put them in little Tupperware dishes and <laughs> store them for in other little places, okay? So they're very efficient in how they do this. They reuse that tomb over and over and over. It's a family tomb. So anybody who dies in their family, they put them in there, let this process happen, take their bones, put them in a Tupperware dish, and then they put it over here. So their understanding of you will not let your Holy One see decay in their mind is very filled with, with meaning to them. They understand that process. They've seen it. They've been through it. They've smelled it, the whole thing, Okay. And Paul says, David, we know where his bones are. We know that his flesh rotted just like it says that it wouldn't happen. You won't let this happen to your Messiah. We know that David died and his flesh is gone and his bones are here. What is he talking about? And he's talking about Jesus who is going to rise from the dead never to see decay. This is the gospel. He's alive. Now, the the gospel is not just that Jesus died for your sins on the cross. It is that, right? He, he paid the price for your sin in order to bring you back into a relationship with God. But it's also the reality of Jesus is alive. And he is a person that wants you to know him and wants you to have a relationship with him on a regular basis. It's not just a religion that you practice. It's not a set of rules that you follow. It is a person that you get to know 
and they have a relationship on a daily basis. Amen? That's the gospel. And what he says is, in conclusion, that we have to make sure people understand when they reject him as a person, as a Messiah, not just as a concept, but you reject him, you are in danger. He says, verse 40, chapter 13, verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about to you. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. He says, don't harden your heart. Don't reject this. Don't dismiss this, because the gospel, this is why this pattern is over and over and over. It's so predictable. The gospel is proclaimed. Some people believe it will be opposed, not just ignored, opposed, persecuted, violently rejected. But then we have to persevere. This is why it's important is because he's saying there's no middle ground with God. You're an enemy of God or you're a friend of God. There's no neutral ground. You can't just be ambivalent to God. Because if you do not have him as a friend, if you are not his friend, then you are his enemy. It's very divisive. This is why these patterns come up over and over and over because the, the gospel is inherently divisive. It should cause you to have to choose a side. Like even right now, you can't just say, mm, I'm not so sure about this. Because if you say, I don't know or I don't want to, then you're on the side of, you're an enemy of God. That should either anger you, which it, you're going to see that over and over, or it should frighten you, but it shouldn't give you just a sense of, I don't care. I don't think apathy is one of the options. So here's what it says. As they were, uh, went out, verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them on the next Sabbath. So... The gospel's proclaimed. There's some faith. They want to know more. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. They were interested to hear what this gospel, what this Jesus is all about. So pro proclamation, belief. But, verse 45, when the Jews saw that the crowds, these huge crowds, they were filled with jealousy, began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So, What's going on now is that they're, it's interesting. I, I find this fascinating. It's not even that they were so offended by the message. You would think if they said that this is a false message, you cannot come back here and preach that again. You are not welcome in this pulpit. Never come back to this synagogue preaching that garbage. They didn't say that. They're like, come on back. We want to hear more. But then they saw that they're, popular with other people that, in a way that they're not, this personal jealousy caused them to actually hate Paul on a personal level. Isn't that interesting? I find that fascinating. They don't care that the, what he's preaching is right or wrong. All they care about is, is the kind of credit and popularity that he's getting. And I'm saying this because I think it shows us something about human nature. We have to be careful that we don't let our personal preferences get in the way of understanding the
jealousy, stupid envy. So they leave, okay, and they said, we're going to go preach to the Gentiles. Let me say this really quick because it was kind of almost like a, a light bulb in my own head. You see this over and over. Paul will go to the synagogue. The synagogue and the Jewish people will kick him out. He'll say, I'm going to the Gentiles. I've done my duty to you people. And, but in every city following, what does he do? He goes to the synagogue. You're like, well, I thought you said you weren't going to the synagogues anymore. He's just talking about in that location. Okay, he's just talking about, I've distributed the gospel to the Jewish people here, but his pattern is always going to be wherever he goes, he's going to go to the synagogue first. Until or unless they kick him out, he's going to continue to preach the gospel to the Jewish people. Then when he has no more opportunity there, then he'll go to the Gentiles. So he's not saying, I'm done preaching to the Jewish people altogether. He's just saying, right here. I'm not going to waste my time. This is another principle. Um, Verse 50 says, The Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. So what happens is they've preached, people have believed, persecution has come, they leave, okay? It's, this is, again, where don't cast your pearls before swine. They're not going to stay somewhere where they, they can't. They're just going to keep going. This is what the apostles do. They keep going. Chapter 14. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, okay, right away, and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So what you have is proclamation of the gospel. Again, probably very similar to what he preached in that other synagogue. Many people believe, and also many people began to be opposed and began to reject and began to persecute. Common pattern. They continue to persevere. They don't let the persecution distract them and discourage them from the, the need to continue to, to move forward and continue to proclaim the gospel. They're just going to keep doing that. Down in uh, chapter 14, verse uh, 8. Now, Lystra, uh, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. There's, there's another element here of, of a pattern that can happen. There are certain things that will occur when you proclaim the gospel. Some will believe, some will reject, and then there's one more where they twist, okay? But here's what happens. Uh, there's a man sitting who could not use his feet, crippled from birth, had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, 
looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well. So he, there's a spiritual intuition here. I see that you believe. What I'm saying, you, you're, and I, this may freak you out a little bit, but I can look around the sanctuary and I can know who's with me and who is not. Does it scare you? It's, and, and I'm not saying that so you stop you know, giving me eye contact. The, the deal is that, and we all do this, it's, it's, there's something in us that kind of knows when people are with us and when they're not with us. And you can't hide it to a degree. You can't hide it. This guy, he was with Paul. He was there. He was listening. He was like, something about what he's saying is, I, I'm getting this. And Paul knew that he was getting it. And he said in a loud voice, because he is an apostle and he is a prophet, stand up, upright on your feet. And he sprang up, began walking. And you would think, what, what possible outcome could we have if I'm going to just, as I'm, preach, as I'm preaching the gospel, am able to perform an outstanding miracle, somebody who is born crippled, and immediately they can walk. Everybody should be like, well, here's what they do. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Here's what is happening, okay? They see that something really significant has happened, that this is power that beyond anything they've ever seen. They're not starting where the Jewish people were starting with the whole background of understanding who God is and what his word says. They didn't have that. These are basically pagan people who worship all kinds of false gods. And so when they hear the gospel and they see this thing happen, it gets twisted. They didn't, they didn't grasp what the reality of, of who God is and who Jesus is and what it means for their life and having one God and having one Savior and, and uh, all those things that we take for granted because the world, by and large, is monotheistic. Okay, one God. We, we, the major religions of the world, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, understand one God. In the past, it wasn't that way. They, they had all kinds of gods, all kinds of different gods, and they might come down, and they might you know, make babies with humans and have little demigods and do all kinds of stuff, right? So they're trying to wrap all this gospel thing around their current situation, and what they do is they twist it to fit what they already understand. Why is that important?
word to fit how I feel. So, with that happening, what is that? That is an opening for the devil to get his foot in there and cause some problems. And here's what happens. Um, they, I'm on the wrong page. Verse uh, 19. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowd. So they already drove Paul out of, of Iconium, Antioch and Iconium. Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So the devil gets in there just a little bit, and all of a sudden now we can change the whole course of everything that's, that's happening. From people being overwhelmed with, wow, this is amazing, what's going on, to let's kill him. Isn't that strange how huge of a, of a turn that was? devil gets in there, he can really change things around. And so, but who's in control? God's in control, and uh, God wasn't done with Paul yet. And so what happens is, when the disciples gathered about, around him, he rose up and entered the city. I find that fascinating for two things. One is, was Paul dead or not? They stoned him. They thought he was dead. These are people that are familiar with what it looks like when people die. You and I, when somebody's, you know, on that deathbed, we're not exactly sure. We call the coroner, we call the funeral director, and then we're out. Like, we're done with that. These are people that have to deal with dead bodies all the time. It's their job. If my family member dies, I have to deal with it. I can't call necessarily somebody else to deal with it. Most people were familiar with dead bodies. They thought he was dead. It is likely that he was actually dead. Okay? Whether he was or not, doesn't necessarily matter. I just think it's kind of cool. So they gather around, they pray, and he's resurrected or restored or healed or whatever happens miraculously. That's part one. Part two is, can you imagine getting hit with rocks to the point of being dead? Anybody? Like there are a few deaths that I'm like, that, that sounds really horrible. Okay. I won't go into it, but that one is, is one of them. And you get up, and you walk right back into the city that you just got stoned to maybe death in. That's crazy, the amount of authority, power, confidence, or, or whatever that is. Like that, That's something I want. Don't you want that? To know... God is with me. It doesn't matter what I'm walking into. It doesn't matter what they've done to me. It doesn't matter what they say about me. It doesn't matter what the world is going to bring at me. I'm in Christ. He is in me. And that means I have authority to walk through this world however, wherever, whenever I need to. I walk right back in there and keep going. Perseverance. I don't know. It's crazy to me. So um, they do leave. He goes to the next city, the next day, um, in verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city, had made many disciples, returned to Lystra, <laughs> returned to Lystra. You would think that these people would say, you know what, we didn't get them the first time. Let's try again. Like, do you think that they might think that? Maybe they said, <laughs> we can't. This is, yeah, this is beyond us. Maybe it was such a testimony 
to the power of God that many people became believers because of it. So he returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So he's basically going back through the cities that he's just been in, strengthening, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's bottom line. And I say that because you and I, we're Americanized. We, we are absolutely um, addicted to comfort. We're addicted to success. We're addicted to peace. We're addicted to not having problems. We run from conflict. We don't like to be rejected. We don't like anybody to hurt our feelings. And the gospel proclaims, Jesus proclaimed it, he says, if they rejected me, the world's going to do what? It's going to reject you too. He says, in this world, you will have many troubles. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. Paul is just reiterating what we know to be true. He says, the gospel, and I already said this, I'm going to say it again just to emphasize, the gospel is inherently divisive. It's intended to be. It's intended to by God to give people a clear point of reference. You're either with me or you're against me. And those who are with me, the world is going to be against. You live in a hostile environment. And we can be peacemakers, and we should be, and we want to get along, and we want to have a semblance of, of comfort. Okay, I get that. I want that too. But I will not compromise the truth in order to have it. And this is something that the church in our day has to get. Because you understand that many, many churches and many, many Christians all over the nation and all over the world are wanting to compromise what this book says in order to get along with the world. And what's going to happen is they won't have a message. Your message, my message of the gospel is what we live every day. It's what we, what we proclaim, how we function in our families, how we function in our workplaces, how we function in our schools. It's the, the character that we bring. And then the reason for it, when people ask, why are you different, is because I know Jesus Christ, and I would love for you to know him too. And the world wants to compromise with all the sin of the of the current culture. And it, it, wait, I say current culture. It's not really new. You know, all the way back in Genesis, um, they had all the sins that we're talking about now. And it was rampant, and it was prevalent, and it, was, it actually got so bad in, within about five chapters of the Bible that God said, enough is enough. And Noah, <laughs> I'm going to start over. So whatever we're dealing with today is not new. It's just that we have an opportunity to help some people be rescued, just like that ark. But the ark is Jesus. And you and I cannot compromise on who that is, on how that works. It's only Jesus. It is the gospel that will divide. It will split families. 
it'll it'll split up your work relationships it'll split up your friendships um, but we're choosing to stand with the Lord and we want as many people to come on board as possible amen and this is the most loving thing that we could possibly do because there's no middle ground with God and Father we thank you you made it clear you made it simple you didn't make it easy but you give us the power of your Holy Spirit to persevere and Lord we pray God I pray <laughs> that we would be as bold as Paul to walk back into a city that uh, has just violently rejected us not to be unwise, not to be uh, foolish, not prompting any kind of reaction, but Lord, help us to, to be clear, to be confident, to be bold about who you are and who we are in you. And we have hope and we have joy, we have peace, Lord, because of our Savior. And the world needs it even if the world doesn't know that it needs it, Lord, help us to, to proclaim that truth uh, to everyone, however we can, for your glory. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you this morning. The question is, what's the gospel doing in you? What are you doing with the gospel? What's the gospel doing in you? What are you doing with the gospel? Whatever side you're on, whether you're not a believer yet or you are a believer and you're dealing with tribulation or maybe you're seeing a lot of people responding to your testimony. I don't know. Maybe you're wondering how to be more bold in your, your witness. Maybe you're wondering about whether or not you're even in. You don't know for sure. You ask that question, what's the gospel doing in me? What, what am I doing with it? Um, I don't know the answer for you. I don't know the answer for everybody in that. But I do know this, that God will not reject anyone who comes to him. His, his word promises, if you will confess, if you will believe, you will be saved. Absolutely. Amen. Let's stand and sing.